You'd mentioned this tension between the way your business and, you know, your open source obviously works and is being adopted out there and the necessary business you got to build around it because, hey, you know, hey, you you took funding and you're building a business. You've got employees, you got you got stakeholders, you got things you got to accomplish. How do you balance that tension and how does the balance of that tension translate to to trust, I suppose, on both sides of that community fence? Wow, that's a that's a really hard question, but a really a really good question. Um, I guess contentiously, with great difficulty, with a lot of internal consternation. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a really hard balance to get right. Um, is the honest answer, and and it's something that we we definitely deal with every day. You know, on on one hand, if if you pick someone from our engineering team and ask them, hey, should we make this feature open source, or we should we make this feature you know, a commercial feature, they're probably going to say we should make it open source, right? Because it's fun to build open source software and, you know, get that feedback and, you know, give back to the community. If uh, you asked our average engineer, I think they'd, they'd probably veer on the side of building all open source software. Now, if you pick someone from our sales team, they're going to say, well, every feature that we build should be commercial, right? Because, you know, we'll, we'll be able to sell it. So, it's, it's a tough balance. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to build open source software that's crippleware, right? Or that isn't useful or that teases functionality rather than solving real problems. Like we wouldn't have a community if Grafana wasn't really, really useful and solved, you know, real problems and provided real value for our community. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at launchdarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Get $100 in credit at leno.com slash changelog. What's up, friends? You know we love Linode. They're our cloud server of choice. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Take it from us. We use Linode for all of Changelog.com. They are our cloud server of choice, and we love them. Get started for free today with the $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com changelog. If you're not at your desk, that's not a problem. Text changelog to 474747 and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, lino.com slash changelog or text changelog to 474747. Get started today. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk, one-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stachowiak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of changelog.com. Rajdat is the founder and CEO of Grafana Labs. Grafana has become the world's most popular open source technology used to compose observability dashboards, and we use Grafana here at Changelog. Raj and team are 100% focused on building a sustainable business around open source, and they have this big tent open source ecosystem philosophy that's driving every aspect of building their business around their open source, as well as other projects in the open source community. But to understand the wisdom that Raj is leading with today, we have to go back to where things got started. To do that, we had to go back like Prince to 1999. Raj, what happened in 1999 to make it a pivotal year in your life? Well, for me, Adam, that was uh, this uh, little company. And at the time in 99, it wasn't even a company because we weren't even sure that it, that it would become one. It was more of a project. It was called Voxel. And, uh, you know, I was a freshman in college and was super interested in Linux 
and just really wanted to do something with Linux. So at the time, there weren't a lot of people running kind of production systems, you know, using this kind of toy open source project that hardly anyone had heard of. And um, myself and a, and a bunch of friends from, from RPI basically started this ISP hosting company, kind of cloud infrastructure company using Linux, putting it into production. And it, we really kind of stumbled onto this by accident and ended up running Voxel for about 13 years, built it completely organically. Myself and the whole team really had no idea how to run a company. We had, we had no business doing this. Wasn't a lot of experience, wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, we were a bunch of 18-year-olds, right? What did we know? Um, but there was a lot of passion, for sure. And so I ended up doing that for about uh, 13 years. You know, didn't really understand the whole VC world. You know, didn't even understand accounting. Certainly didn't understand sales. And uh, we built a, you know, kind of little business, got it up to about 50 people. You know, built it slowly, bit by bit. You know, as you know, hosting is kind of a pretty capital-intensive business. So we we're always struggling to, to find money to buy more servers. Um, you know, this was pre-cloud, obviously, right? Amazon didn't really come along until, I think, 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it was a ton of fun, very stressful also. And then I'd say we kind of transitioned to actually becoming a business after a few years. You know, by the time people were either graduating or dropping out, none of us wanted to get real jobs, right? So um, we kind of made this our thing and um, ended up getting some really good clients. You know, a lot of dot-com companies that eventually dot-bombed and that was, uh, that was fun. Dot-bombed, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was, a, it was a ton of fun and really uh, a, a good learning experience. And, you know, a lot of the people from... Uh, from Voxel kind of ended up going on to do really interesting things, right? So, you know, my my partner, Zach Smith, ended up starting another hosting company called Packet that he just sold to Equinix a few months ago. You know, one of our uh, most talented engineers, Chris Beavers, um, started a company called NS1 that's doing really well. You know, Justin Beagle, uh, one of our really awesome salespeople, ended up co-founding Kentech, another cloud infrastructure company that's doing really well. So that was actually one of the things that I, uh, you know, personally speaking, I'm kind of most, uh, most proud of, if that's the right word, is, is uh, you know, a bunch of the Voxel crew ended up, you know, myself certainly included, ended up learning a lot from that experience and, you know, kind of rolled forward into, into new companies and, and new projects. You know, in fact, there was a, a TechCrunch article that came out a few months ago that called it the Voxel Mafia. That was a really <laughs> kind of fun term and. uh you know, that's the way I look at it. So, you know, for, for me, uh, this current company is in many ways kind of like a do-over. You know, we get to, to take a lot of those lessons and kind of try to not make the same mistakes, but also double down on the things that, uh, the things that worked, you know? Yeah, I mean, double down on what works for sure. I mean, anytime you find out what does work, 10 exit, right? Do it until it stops working. I mean, yep. that's the... That's the age-old marketing shtick is like, if you found something that works or sales or you know pretty much anything, I suppose it could work really anywhere. But if this works, do it until it stops working. And if it works, do it again until it stops. What's interesting is that, is, you know, the, I guess the, I'm not sure I totally understand the mafia part of it, if it's a bad thing or a good thing, but that you've enabled others to move on and do awesome stuff. I'm familiar with Jacob Smith, not Zach, but Jacob yep. from Packet. Uh, talked with Jacob a while back. Never ended up working with them, but uh, great team, 
super interesting look at bare metal and what that does. You know, there's all these different aspects of of infrastructure, you know, from back in these days that you're talking about 1999, literally buying a server for a company to use and they're the only ones on it to yep. cloud. Now virtualization, you know, Kubernetes, clustering, all this stuff that's, you know, moved on serverless and right back to bare metal with packet, which is pretty interesting. Yep. And to, and to do something that actually, you know, was successful for many years, not just like five years or, you know, or so it's like more than a decade. I mean, kudos to you for doing anything from college. that lasted more than a decade, man. I mean, most businesses fail and fail early. Yours didn't. Yeah. I mean, that's fair, but we also kind of grew it sort of super slowly, right? Which is, is no longer the MO it seems with startups these days. Right. So Nowadays, it's all about, you know, raise a ton of money, you know, fail fast, go big, go home, that kind of thing. I think, uh, yeah. you know, not necessarily by choice, but just because it was the only option available to us, we we really built Voxel organically, you know, and kind of step by step, right? Like every time we could, you know, we never had a choice to be anything but profitable from, you know, from day one, right? There was, we, we had no True. concept of a burn or even being able to have a burn, Right. If we had a burn, it meant we'd we'd go out of business. So yeah, it was just a it was just a different environment, different world. You know, starting in '99 meant that we were, you know, a year away from the dot com crash. And you know, once that happened, you know, the idea of a company like that getting funding was was kind of completely off the table. Right? Investors had no appetite. Uh, it's a combination of investors having no appetite and and us having no awareness or knowledge of how to even raise money, right? So that made for an interesting mm-hmm. combination, which just meant that, uh, you know, we didn't really have a choice but to, to kind of build it organically step by step, you know. And the, the mafia thing's interesting. Yeah, mafia is obviously a, a bad word or a negative word. I think people use it because, uh, you know, we were, we were from New York, right? So it was kind of like <laughs> a, an East Coast thing to, to right. kind of contrast with the typical uh, Silicon Valley or Silly Valley, uh, you know, kind of... Yeah. Uh, so then let's fast forward some, we'll, we'll go back again. We'll tell a lot of your stories. So let's not camp out here for too long, but or get stuck here. I suppose, you know, when you talk about Grafana labs today and the kind of company you're building today, and you mentioned, you know, a do over, you know, learn from then do now better kind of aspect when it comes to the kind of company you're trying to build in terms of like you'd mentioned, no appetite for funding Voxel from, you know, after the dot-com bust and more so the kind of company you're trying to build less, I guess less about the company, more, but more about the speed at which you're trying to build it and exit, you know, this whole idea of like, how do you build a company these days? It's either the short and easy road or the long and hard road, like which direction, which route are you taking given, I guess what you've learned and maybe where you actually, you know, where Raj wants to go, not so much like, do you sort of sacrifice your own desires and build the company the company needs to be? Or do you sort of like inherit your own desires and sort of like think long-term, long-tail? I think it's a good question. I mean, I don't think it's a black and white or, or binary answer, rather. We've been at this for Grafana Labs for about uh, six years now already, right? But the big mistake we made at Voxel, kind of in retrospect, was you know not capitalizing the company sufficiently, right? So cash was always the thing that was constraining our growth back in the voxel days. So even though we had a decent product, you know, and a decent opportunity, we really couldn't execute at the speed and realize that that opportunity that we had or move on the window of opportunity that was in front of us. So that's certainly a mistake that 
you know, we don't want to repeat at Grafana Labs, which is part of the reason why we've, you know, raised our Series A, you know, and we've kind of have, we have enough money in the bank where we're not making decisions based on, you know, we're not making all our decisions based on, you know, can we afford this right now? There's, there's more room to invest in the future, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you sort of spend money willy nilly, but it, it means that you can do things that make sense that you're, that you're confident in. Mm-hmm. You know, with regard to kind of exits and timeframes, I mean, you know, I'm a firm believer and, you know, I think, you know, we, we kind of have this kind of imprinted in the, in the DNA of Grafana Labs. And we like to say we're long-term greedy, right? Um, and um, we're not trying to optimize for a particular exit or a time horizon for an exit. Um, you know, I, I really think that if you try to do that, you're going to end up making decisions that are really suboptimal. So we act like we're going to run the company forever. I'm a firm believer that that's the right way to do it, right? I mean, if you end mm-hmm. up getting acquired or you end up going public, you know, whatever your metric for success is, I think the way that you do that, no matter what your business is, is by just trying to build a good business for the long term. You know, and if you get if you get taken out in a awesome exit, so be it. But if you try to optimize for that, I really think that you end up making suboptimal decisions, right? I mean, it's kind of a cliche, you know, some people say that, uh, you know, companies are bought, not sold, right? And uh, I think that there's a certain degree of truth in that. If you're trying to optimize to, you know, like sell, I want to sell to Google in five years or something like that. And you, you know, if that's your plan and, you know, you, you're just going to make a bunch of bad decisions that take away from building a, building a great business. And I think that if you just try to build a, a really good long-term business, good things will happen, you know? So I guess the question might be then, how do you make different choices? Given that, aside from simply just saying we're optimizing not to be sold, but this idea of like long-term greedier, is that what you said? Long-term yep, greedy? long-term that greedy. Was, okay. Make sure I had it correct, which I like, by the way, that's, that's super cool. Uh, I'm not sure if you coined that or not, but I like it. So I'm going to keep using that. I like that a lot. We definitely didn't coin it. In fact, I think, uh, I think Goldman Sachs coined it. So not, oh, is that right? not necessarily a company I, uh, I admire, but uh, I think it's a good phrase. <laughs> it is a good phrase. Well, I think it's got some opportunity, I suppose, to think like, I, I guess greed can be a negative connotation to it, but you know, I'd rather be long-term than short-term greedy if I'm going to be greedy at all. Like let's, yep. let's focus on the long-term because there's different attributes and attitudes that come from a long-term mindset, right? Yep. When you're thinking about, you know, even a proverb from the Bible, you can't plow a straight row if you're looking back, right? Sure. Which is sort of this idea, like if you're constantly looking back, you're thinking like, how could have I done differently? Who could have I been sold to? You know, what what choices did I make or could have I made to be acquired? Instead of thinking like the future of like growing a company that's worthwhile for the employees of that company, the customers of that company, you know, the investors, if you have them of that company, the founders, the stakeholders. I mean, you can go on through the layers sure. of interests in a company but if you're if you're looking back you're thinking like you know short-term gains or you know exit strategies you're gonna miss out on the opportunity and you you'd mentioned this idea of this window of opportunity and this is something i think that you know i personally am retrospective about like am i growing or are we growing the company you know this business change all media in the right way to capture our window of opportunity and then i asked you about your personal desire for the company and how that may rub or be in parallel with the necessariness or the needs of Grafana Labs in terms of like its trajectory, where it needs to go. 
Because yeah. I, you know, for me, for example, I'll just, you know, camp on this for just a second. Like I may desire not to build a New York headquartered media company. Now we may be in every way a media company, but we're not in New York. We'll, we'll probably never have a New York office. You know, so there's certain choices we're making that are different than other in quotes media companies might make. And so parallel that or that to what you're doing, maybe you've got particular personal desires. Maybe your business has certain specifics that it needs to do to be the business to capture this window of opportunity. Yep. What is that for you? I guess it's a, it's a combination of those two things. Yeah. So on the personal level, I mean, I really love to travel, right? I really love doing business internationally. You know, I'm sort of pre-COVID, I was on the road probably 300 days a year. And, you know, one of the things that at Voxel that was interesting is, you know, even though we were a company of 50 people, we were kind of spread out, you know, pretty much across the world. We had a large hub in New York, but, you know, talent is everywhere, right? So one of the things with Grafana Labs is, is we're remote first, right? So we have uh, just over 150 employees, but we're in like 20 different countries. And that's really fun. That's really exciting. But it's also a way to just get the, the best talent, no matter where that talent is. So that's kind of a, I guess, merger of, you know, personal and sort of business strategy, right? Sort of the open source angle is also uh, part of that. You know, at, uh, at Voxel, we really saw how infrastructure was changing, you know, sort of like you said, from bare metal to containers to serverless now. We also saw how software was changing and how, you know, Mark Andreessen likes to say software is eating the world. I mean, open source is kind of eating the software world, right? And so, you know, we really wanted to do something with open source. And so, you know, that's that's what we're all about, right? We're definitely an open source company, not just with Grafana, but with things like Loki and Prometheus. And that also ties in with long-term greedy, right? You have to really balance this you know, sort of adoption and this grounds up community movement with your monetization cycle, right? And, you know, that takes time to nurture and you have to constantly get that balance right. And so that's something that we've been, you know, really trying to focus on the last six years is balancing the, you know, creating a vibrant kind of healthy and diverse community and, you know, serving its needs, which is all about value creation in open source land with, the demands of our commercial strategy, which is all about value capture, right? And that that tension, I think, exists in any open source company. And that tension is healthy, um, you know, and we, we deal with that and we try to balance that every day. And it's hard, but that's also part of being long-term greedy is, you know, we're trying to, in some ways, have our cake and eat it, I guess would be the, the cynical mm. way to put it. Yeah. It's definitely a combination of a belief that, you know, we're doing things that will allow us to, you know, create really good software that our community and our customers love, right? And we do it in a way that we think is really effective, which is remote first and having people all over the world, which by the way, is how the best open source projects have always been built, right? Yeah. Since the Linux days. And, you know, for, for myself and my co-founders and the core team, we really believe in those two things. And that kind of reflects in a lot of our strategy, a lot of our day-to-day decisions. You know, we're also what we call big tent, which means that we really value interoperability of the wider ecosystem. You know, so a lot of companies and a lot of vendors in our space try to, you know, own the entire stack and sort of, you know, 
tell a customer that, uh, you know, it's my way or the highway or replace all of what you have and, you know, buy my new shiny solution. And, uh, you know, as an open source company, we take open in, you know, a whole new level because we prioritize interoperability above anything else, right? So if a customer of ours has, you know, existing vendors that they're working with, right? Like companies that we really admire and respect, like say, you know, New Relic or Datadog or, you know, their data is in a SQL database or they've, you know, used something like Amazon CloudWatch or wherever, you know, whatever vendor or wherever their data is stored, you know, we'll, we'll integrate natively with those vendors and we don't require uh, our customers and users to replace them, right? So, yeah, I mean, it, that's a pretty long-term strategy also. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it's also about trust, right? Which is what's really important in open source and, and in any business. We're trying to be perceived as not just another vendor. We're trying to be perceived as a trusted advisor. And, you know, that's certainly aspirational, you know, and it sounds like, uh, you know, a good line that you'll find on a marketing website. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we try to make it real. And, and that's certainly, you know, certainly harder as we scale the company. Well, I think the big tent philosophy certainly leans in towards the the trusted advisor. Yep. Right. Like having that is especially that's that's part of your your recent raise announcement too. I mean, that's it's all over that. One of the big pillars of that was talking about this big tent philosophy, and I think that you can capture that trust necessary from the community, even from those in your company that obviously work there for a reason, right? They believe in something. They just don't want a job, right? Yeah. Somebody wants to believe in what they're doing. And the reason they do that is because, you know, you're not trying to knock down buildings. You're trying to make sure the stop signs are in the right place and the the stoplights and whatnot work. You're not knocking down buildings to build your own city. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're helping other people make sure their buildings and their foundations are strong and the community is strong and interruptibility is huge and crucial in open source, especially as you look at, what cloud is like if you're a player in the cloud, you kind of have to, well, you should, you don't have to, but you should optimize for interruptibility and, you know, openness and things like that. Cause you've got a lot of players in that space it, more than just simply Grafana labs and yeah. Grafana and Loki. Like there's more to the stack than those two or three things. It's a bigger piece. Absolutely. A big puzzle. Absolutely. And, and the most interesting customers and, you know, the largest customers have a very complicated, you know, infrastructure. They're using all sorts of tools and, you know, they have many, many vendors that, you know, a variety of teams are using in different ways. And, you know, I think uh, I agree with you that vendors should prioritize interoperability. I don't think many of them actually do. And uh, a lot of new employees who come into Grafana Labs kind of get surprised by this, right? Whether it's on the uh, engineering side or on the sales side, right? Like our strict MO is that we don't really disparage the quote unquote competition, right? Because we do prioritize interoperability. You know, on the engineering side, we will absolutely focus on creating good experiences with not just other open source projects, like let's say Elasticsearch is a great one, right? They have a fantastic database. I mean, Elasticsearch is just awesome, you know, and we really prioritize working well with that database. You know, we also have our own logging platform, you know, Loki, and in some ways it competes with Elasticsearch for some use cases. 
Our bigger story and our kind of macro, more important MO is Big Ten and prioritizing interoperability. So we will literally go to customers and say like, look, you have Elasticsearch. It's great. You know, we're not going to tell you to rip it out. You know, use Grafana with it and, uh, and we'll connect to it natively. And uh, here's what it's really good for. And we'll tell that story. So when someone comes into, let's say, our sales team, you know, the normal kind of uh, playbook with sales is like, all right, like, you know, give me the battle card, right? Like, let, give me the kill sheet on how to, you know, talk trash about all these other vendors and, and why we're better and why they suck. The kill sheet. I like it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, our core team's always like, wait, 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 nope, that's, that's really not what we do, right? We're happy to talk about, you know, the differences between, you know, different vendors. And that's part of being a trusted advisor, but there will be no kill sheets. We don't have this kind of rip and replace mentality. You know, like you said, right. we're not trying to, you know, tear down the buildings. We're trying to, you know, put in the, you know, stop signs and, uh, and, and help with the plumbing. Right. And if you want a new building, we're happy to, you know, build one for you, but, uh, right. you know, we're not going to raise the city. Right. Like, you know, Scott Fingerhut, who just joined us as our, our VP of marketing, you know, uh, he likes to say that, uh, you know, customers should own their own observability strategy, right. Not a single vendor. And, uh, I think that's really right. You know, vendors are really just trying to come in and say, all right, you know, we're going to take over your, your whole platform. We're going to take over your whole observability strategy, throw everything away, you know, move to this new shiny thing. And, you know, the reality is, is I think this is kind of like the oldest lie that has existed in IT for a while, you know, which is this consolidation play, right? Which is sort of like, okay, we're the new shiny database. We want you to move all your data into this, you know, our newfangled database but guess what? By the time you're halfway done with that, particularly if you're a large, complicated, you know, organization, a large enterprise, you know, by the time you're halfway done moving to the newfangled database, that newfangled database is going to be the new legacy database. And there's going to be another vendor that's just sold you, a, you know, yet another even newer fangled database. And so this is going to be this like, you know, chasing your own tail kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, you know, yeah, interoperability is really key. And I, I do think it's tied to, to being a trusted advisor. And that's what makes Grafana, you know, fairly unique is we kind of just natively connect to over 50 different, you know, open source projects, commercial projects, different databases, and, and we don't require that people move their data, right? Keep your data where it is. And, you know, there's a lot of really good vendors out there, a lot of really good open source projects, you know, commercial offerings. And, you know, it's about respecting people's choices at the end of the day. Yeah. You'd mentioned this tension between open source, the way your business and, you know, your open source obviously works and is being adopted out there. And the necessary business you got to build around it because, hey, you know, hey, you, you took funding and you're building a business. You've got employees, you got you got stakeholders, you got things you got to accomplish. And you mentioned this tension and then you sort of dovetailed into the trusted advisor, which we talked about a bit there. How do you, I suppose, balance that tension? And how does the balance of that tension translate to, to trust, I suppose, on both sides of that community fence? Wow, that's a really hard question, but a really, a really good question. So how do we balance that tension? I guess contentiously, with great difficulty, with a lot of internal consternation, <laughs> Yeah, it's a really hard balance to get right, is the honest answer. And, and it's something that we, we definitely deal with every day. You know, on, on one hand, if you pick someone from our engineering team and ask them, hey, should we make this feature open source or we, should we make this feature, you know, a commercial feature? 
they're probably going to say we should make it open source, right? Because it's fun to build open source software and, you know, get that feedback and, you know, get back to the community. And if you pick someone, if you asked our average engineer, I think they'd, they'd probably veer on the side of building all open source software. Now, if you pick someone from our sales team, they're going to say, well, every feature that we build should be commercial, right? Because, you know, we'll, we'll be able to sell it. So it's a tough balance. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to build open source software that's crippleware, right? Or that isn't useful or that teases functionality rather than solving real problems. We wouldn't have a community if Grafana wasn't really, really useful and solved, you know, real problems and provided real value for our community. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have a business, right? Like our community and, you know, the 500,000 plus companies that are using open source Grafana, that's the superpower for the, for the business and for the commercial side of the house, right? So, you know, we wouldn't be able to, to sell hardly anything if that community wasn't really strong. So mission number one for us is actually growing the community, increasing adoption, and then monetization is sort of number two, right? And uh, that can be tough, you know, particularly for, for our sales teams, you know, because it's long-term greedy again, right? It doesn't necessarily help when you have a, a quarter to hit this quarter, right? That, that long-term yeah. greedy strategy can be cold comfort to that team. But I guess the way we try to balance it is we ask ourselves, we, we constantly ask ourselves like, hey, is this feature, you know, useful for the average user, you know, a startup, you know, a, a small company, you know, even if they're running it in production, even if they're running it at scale, if it is, let's make it open source. Let's kind of, you know, be pretty liberal with what we make open source. And if it's something that is really interesting only to the largest enterprises, like a bank or, you know, a Fortune 500 company, then we'll consider making that feature kind of part of our commercial offerings. And that's kind of like a, a pretty, you know, broad, you know, sort of subjective way to think about it. And it's certainly more of an art than a science, but that's kind of one of the so-called sniff tests that we apply when trying to strike that balance. Mm -hmm. I'd say that probably 95% of our engineering efforts go into open source, even for the next several years, like the large, large majority of our, of our engineering effort will go into open source. Like our whole, our whole business model and the way most open source companies work is it's all about monetizing a very small percentage of your users right? Like, I don't think any open source company, um, or at least, you know, not a rational one, or in my opinion, one that'll be successful, will will kind of think, well, we're going to convert most of our users to paid, or, you know, even, uh, even half of our users to paid. I mean, that's just insane. You know, it's about creating a really, really large community, and then figuring out, you know, who the very small percentage of that community that can become customers are. And if you can create a large enough community, then that small percentage can be a real business, right? And so that's why it's so important to, to focus on community and adoption. And, uh, you know, we're really lucky to kind of be the center of mass or, or the stewards, if you will, of this really vibrant community. And I, you know, I, I say it's our superpower, but it really is. And we're just kind of incredibly grateful for the tailwind that they give our business, right? Um, both in terms of helping us build better software through you know, pull requests, contributions, you know, big and small, you know, kind of keeping us honest with, with what we're doing. Um, a lot of them are very interested in, the, in, in how the business is doing, you know, and if we get that balance right, I think the community, you know, supports us and will continue to support us because at the end of the day, they want, 
they want Grafana to be a sustainable, you know, project and for it to, you know, for the velocity of Grafana to, to increase even further on the open source side, right? So, you know, when we started, it was just my co-founder, Torkel, who created Grafana in uh, 2014. And, uh, you know, he was kind of doing the majority of the development. And, you know, we managed to hire a couple of people to work with him in Stockholm. And now we have, you know, almost uh, 40 people working on Grafana. And like I said, 95% of our effort is on open source, right? So it's like this really nice virtuous cycle where, you know, like we can invest more in open source as we're successful in, um, you know, in building the commercial business. And so as long as that virtuous cycle isn't broken and that that balance is right, you know, it's it's a really beautiful thing for sure. The way I like to think about it, especially in this case, is that you know, the adoption of and the open source is the foundation for which you can even possibly build Grafana Labs, anything, you know, in terms of like commercially viable anything. So if the open source isn't adoptable, communicable, you know, whatever you want to attach to the uh, adjectives you can do for an open source project like Grafana, you know, if that's not a solid foundation, then you can't really build, you know, cloud, enterprise, commercial offerings for banks, et cetera, on top of that, if it if it's not a vibrant, useful project that actually gives back. So I love the idea that, you know, 95% of what you do is open source and it's that, you know, five-ish percent or more if I'm just using the word you use to, to define that. But, right, I mean, if the open source part of it isn't a solid foundation, then what company can you build on top of it? Oh, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. right. We, we just be like a, you know, a normal you know, software company that has to, it'd be like pushing a string up a hill, right? It's, it would be really, really hard. I mean, the community gives us a, a really large base of users who already use and trust our software, right? They know Grafana. Um, they're already solving problems with it. Like all of our, even for our commercial product, like Grafana Enterprise and Grafana Cloud, like our sales model is largely inbound, right? Like people are coming to us and saying like, hey, we're using Grafana. Like, tell us about Grafana Enterprise. Tell us about Grafana Cloud. You know, we already trust you guys. You don't have to convince us that well, that, you, awesome. that you have good stuff, right? So yeah, that that really helps with our sales efficiency. You know, that gives us a you know significant kind of structural advantage, right? I mean, so yeah, I think community is absolutely the foundation. And the way I'd explain it to someone who's not familiar with open source, who's came from say a, an enterprise software background, is imagine if you had five hundred thousand trials underway. 500,000 POCs underway. Now, first of all, what would it cost you from a marketing standpoint to be able to get 500,000 businesses trialing your software? I mean, in, oh, yeah. and, I mean, that would be an unbelievable, you know, I don't know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of marketing in order to, in order to do that, right? Um, and that creates this, you know, structural advantage from a sales standpoint for the business. Now, of course, the downside is, those 500,000 companies aren't actually running trials because most of them will say, thanks, this is great and I can use it forever and I, I don't have to pay you a single cent, right? That's just the way that open source works. Open source has never been about value capture. Open source has always been about value creation. And so the model is we will do a tremendous amount of value creation and a very small amount of value capture. And I 100% agree that that's the, the foundation of our business and you know, it's all about trying to have this really, really large pie 
and capture a very small slice of it. And if the pie is large enough, then that small slice is material. And, you know, we have a real business there. But if you try to go too far and capture, you know, too big of a slice or get that balance wrong, you're going to hurt the community. And that is ultimately, I think, a mistake that other open source companies have made. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, ultimately, I think a, uh, you know, really, you know, you might have a good quarter or a good year when you do that, but you're, you're kind of compromising the foundation of your business, right? Which is why community and adoption is number one for us. And uh, having a healthy community and, you know, providing really valuable open source software that's free to use, that solves problems for, you know, solves real problems, isn't crippleware, isn't like shareware or, or freemium, or, you know, we don't like those words, right? That's not what open source is about. That's why that's so important to us. Yeah, freemium is an interesting aspect. Uh, I just had a conversation actually with the uh, founder of Sneak on that exact subject. And it was interesting because I, I, there's parts of the freemium model I can appreciate, and Sneak is open source. They have a freemium, similar, probably similar in business models, but obviously not the same exact philosophy because they do have a freemium model. But I can see where that, you know, the free version essentially is the open source, right? This this optimized for adoption, optimized for, you know, as you said, not value capture, but um, value creation, yep. right? That's sort of what it is. I mean, is that not what open source is at large? Is this large freemium model, this large 50, 500,000 proof of concepts out there? It's, I guess it's similar, um, for sure. Um, you know, freemium and open source are, I guess there's, there's a pretty wide overlap in terms of, you know, the, the go to market motion. They're similar in terms of distribution models, but where they're very different is sort of the freedom that open source provides its users, right? So, you know, open source used to be called free software, right? Back in the, in the Richard Stallman, uh, days, right. Linux days. Foss. Yeah, exactly. Free and open source software. Yeah. yeah. That term became uncool at some point. Yep. You're, you're, you're aging yourself, Adam, because a lot of the, you know, pe people don't remember that anymore. Um, <laughs> That's right. But, uh, you know, kind of got rebranded as open source. But back when it was called Wait, Foss, it's shorter, right? And, and I think it's more business friendly. Right. Free was a really interesting word um, for Foss. But, you know, the, the F in Foss, the word free, it was never about free, free cost, right? It was about freedoms and the freedom when you get the source code under a liberal license to kind of do what you want and never have to worry about what happens if that vendor goes away, if that vendor stops supporting you, if you want to make changes yourself, if you want to modify it to do things that it doesn't currently do, you know, to never have to be beholden to someone for a bug fix or an improvement or, you know, it's like the ultimate insurance policy, right? True. And so open source is different in that way where, you know, if we start doing a, doing a bad job and, uh, you know, or if we start getting that balance wrong between, you know, value creation and value capture, then people in our community can be like, you know what, Grafana Labs, like we're going to go our own way, right? And we're going to fork Grafana. And, you know, if someone can do a better job with that, then, you know, we're not going to be the, the company behind the software anymore, right? Like we own the trademark, you know, we don't have the right to prevent forks from happening. We don't have the right to stop someone or a group saying, you know what, we can do this better than Grafana Labs. 
and we're going to create a better Grafana by using the work, all the work that Grafana Labs has done, you know, and, and that's what makes open source really powerful, you know, and uh, the ability to customize it, the ability to modify it and not be beholden to a vendor. And so I think that's a big difference between freemium and open source. And I also think that's why open source has really captured the, the mind share that it enjoys with developers that freemium has never really been able to, um, to capture, right? Because that freedom, both to redistribute, to use, to modify, to base derivative works off of, you know, that's, that's really powerful. You know, and, and those ideas, you know, go back decades now, right? And, you know, with things like Linux, you know, we see you wouldn't have projects like Android as an example, right? If, if the, those freedoms didn't exist. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, this tension, not going back there, but kind of dovetailing off of that, this tension and the obvious inherited value of FOSS. I, I don't think it's a terrible term. I think the free still needs to be talked about in open source. I think the freedoms of open source needs to be talked about. But then you'd mentioned, you know, when you talk to your developers, you talk to your sales team, you get two different answers when it comes to, hey, this is a new feature we're going to put in Grafana. Who should get it, right? And there's obvious reasons why an engineer may be more for open source and why a salesperson may be less. And it's not because they're greedy. It's like, that's how they get paid. Make sure. Sense. Yep. Right? But that says you got to have, you know, some some pretty keen eyes on company culture yep. because to be able to lead that business is one thing to be able to hire the right people and have them be motivated and believe that 95% of what you produce in terms of value creation should go to open source. How in the world do you do that? Like getting that kind of culture, right? How do you do that? That's a great question. And you know, that goes back to kind of the do over comment that we started is sort of like a realization um, of how important culture is in a company, right? Particularly when the company's growing really fast. Like, you know, personally speaking, I, I feel out of my element on most days because at Voxel, we grew the company to, to 50 people over the course of 12 years. And at Grafana Labs, we're at, uh, you know, 150 plus. And we'll probably be, if things go on plan, we'll probably be at 400 people by the end of next year. Whoa. You know, so... You know, I, I haven't done this before. And, you know, the thing that I really realized towards the tail end of Voxel is, is how important culture is. You know, so that's been something that's been really kind of top of mind for me and my co-founders. And I think we've got, we've put into place, a, I think, a pretty strong team, you know, in terms of the senior leadership of the company that kind of understands this dynamic, right? And, you know, our leadership on the engineering side really respects what the sales team is trying to do. The leadership on the sales side really understands, you know, this golden goose phenomena in terms of the balance, right? And I think it really comes down to that is, you know, we're all in this together, right? You're right. People aren't being greedy, right? A salesperson isn't being, you know, greedy per se when, when they fall one way. An engineer isn't being naive either when they fall the other way. Right. You know, so I think that, you know, having the leadership team that really gets the big picture holistically is is the only way that you're going to have a fighting chance of getting that balance right you know and uh and my co-founders you know Torkel and Anthony I think really fundamentally understand the balance uh, our engineering leadership such as uh you know Tom Wilkie our VP of product you know he really gets it and perhaps most importantly our sales leadership you know like uh Doug Hanna our chief operating officer uh Dave Kranowitz our VP of sales like they're 
shall we say, pretty unique in a good way in terms of sales leaders where, you know, they, they really understand this dynamic. And it's not something that they're going to get automatically that they're going to be born with, right? To some degree, they've got to be indoctrinated into the culture and that you can't just serve them Kool-Aid and tell them to drink it either. You know, you really have right. to kind of explain and show them why it is the case, right? So it's something that isn't passive. It's very active. You know, just as an example, we hold, you know, sessions, you know, from the the key leadership down kind of explaining this dynamic. And it's, uh, it's something we talk about internally a lot. And I think it comes down to also people having not just understanding, but respect for, you know, all parts of the company, right? Like it's a, it's about a shared mission. Uh, it's about realizing the importance of this foundation. And uh, it's about respecting what your colleagues are, are doing in all facets of the company, right? And it's not something that you just, that just happens or you get for free. Um, so it takes work. And I feel like that's uh, one of the major things that we have to keep double, keep reinvesting in, you know, as we, as we scale the company, you know, and I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty pleased with the dynamic that exists today between, you know, the engineering teams and the sales teams and, you know, like uh, it's, it's very collaborative and I think that's going to be challenging uh, as the company gets, you know, keeps hitting new inflection points and, and keeps getting yeah. bigger and bigger for sure. So you mentioned you're at 150 people now, 400 by the end of next year. So by the end of 2021, yep, projected 400 people, which is a lot. Obviously getting the right people in place makes sense. You mentioned the foundation of open source, this golden goose phenomena that uh, both sides of the fence need to have respect for. Um you know, what stage when it comes to scaling the company in terms of revenue, where are you at in terms of not so much money, not so much how much revenue, but where are you at with organizational sales, things like that? How new is that for Grafana? Have you been doing it for a while, less than a year, more than a year? Where are you at with sales efforts and revenue generation? So we, we've been kind of generating revenue for about four years but we have only really had a sales team for about a year and a half. And that was a huge, I guess. It's an interesting ratio. Yeah. Um, you know, we were kind of, because we're lucky enough to get a bunch of inbound interest from the community, you know, sort of the, the core founders and founding team, if you will, of the company were, was just kind of handling sales in a very ad hoc way, right? And we were learning a lot about what the patterns were, you know, who our customers were, and we managed to get up to several million dollars a year worth of revenue before we really invested in a sales team. And one of the big mistakes that I made at Voxel was not, not ascribing enough importance to having a really great sales team, right? And I think that's a mistake that a lot of, you know, technical founders or product-oriented founders make, right? So, I don't know, as an 18-year-old as an starting Voxel, I had a, a very naive view of the world that I think is not uncommon, which is sort of build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door, right? <laughs> That's not the way the world works, right? Welcome to real life. And so one of the kind of do-overs at Grafana Labs was making sure that we had a really good, um, you know, go-to-market motion and that we invested in that. So we hired our first sales director, Graham Moreno from MongoDB about a year and a half ago. And uh, he really helped kind of, you know, take what we were doing, which was very organic, you know, ad hoc, 
kind of founder and, and founding team led sales. And he actually came in and brought like that initial layer of process and discipline and repeatability into things. And then about a year ago, we hired a chief operating officer, Doug Hanna from Zendesk. And he came in along with Dave Kranowitz, our VP of sales, who we hired around the same time and it kind of leveled up what Graham did one level more. So at this point, we now have uh, about 15 sales people at Grafunnel Labs. Um, we have t- three teams, uh, a West team, an East team, and a international team. And, uh, you know, we've got a, you know, our, our, our sales team and go-to-market efforts are, are really rocking and rolling, right? But we kind of built it slowly. We built it at opportune moments. And, uh, you know, I think Doug and Dave and Graham have done a really good job over the last year and a half. And uh, at this point, we've got a pretty pretty mature sales team. But we did it sort of after we were generating revenue. And that was deliberate because I think if you do that too fast, you kind of, you, you want to do that once you've figured out some some basics in terms of, you know, how you're selling, who you're selling to, what they're buying, right? And so it was really about accelerating what we had, formalizing it, adding a level of rigor, you know, repeatability. And we're taking sales very seriously now, right? We've got some pretty ambitious targets. So, you know, we you know, yeah. that's definitely, you know, part of that. But I think we're selling in the in the right way and, you know, in a in a so-called long-term greedy scenario. When Doug Hanna, our chief operating officer, came on board, you know, him and I spent a lot of time kind of talking about open source and, you know, the whole value creation, value capture, you know, dynamic. And and he actually came up with the uh the golden goose analogy and started, you know, preaching it to the uh, the entire sales team, right? So it's back to making sure we have the right people, you know, in place. And, uh, you know, on the engineering side, they were, our whole engineering team's like super supportive of what the sales team is doing. And I said, it's collaborative. And I, I don't say that lightly because I think a lot of times the relationship between engineering and sales can get kind of contentious, right? And, Absolutely. uh you know, engineers are like, oh my God, what did the sales team just tell the customer? What did they sell? Right. And salespeople are like, oh my God, like, why can't the engineering team like give me product that I can sell or they're screwing everything up. Right. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of natural tendency, I think, to finger point and, you know, to some degree that's inevitable as you scale a company, I think. But I feel like part of my role is, is making sure that doesn't happen or at least staving that off as, as long as possible. What's interesting in your story that I've heard so far is the between the lines, which is sometimes, I won't say often, I'll just say sometimes, sometimes when you begin a sales team, you make mistakes and those people aren't around long. It seems like the people you've brought on, and maybe there's parts of your story you're not sharing for whatever reason, maybe you're not, that uh, you see often where you'll begin a sales team and maybe it's your experience with Voxel that you've you know kind of have this wisdom to, to lean upon. You'll see a sales team get developed too early, as you'd mentioned, right? Not really understand what you're selling, how you should sell it, how you should package it, how you should approach your, you know, your customers. Understanding this golden goose phenomena, like I think that's a really interesting thing that a lot of open source companies should understand very well to have a good balance between their engineers and their sales teams like we're talking about here. But often what you'll see happen is a sales team will get brought on and the upside won't be there or they got to do too much work. And, you know, there's not a really clear understanding of what to sell, how to sell it, you know, and you've been able to not have that problem. It seems where you bring somebody on, they spin out and they 
flounder and, and you sort of limp along sales-wise for four years. Yep. When you could have been much stronger earlier. There's probably a few reasons for that. I mean, let's never underestimate luck in, in a lot of this, right? Sure, for one. sure. Good job on that luck. Right. <laughs> but uh, now I'm, I'm kind of half joking with that. But in all seriousness, I think the, the two reasons I can think of is, is one, just hiring the right people at the right time, right? That's part of it. So like, you know, when Graham came in, Graham, you know, was a, you know, was a pretty young guy. I mean, he, he makes me feel old, I should say. You know, he came in from MongoDB and, um, you know, he really kind of, like I said, up-leveled our process, you know, one degree. And then when Doug and Dave came in, you know, they kind of amped up the volume and the rigor and the process. But if we try to, if we try to do level two at the time that we did level one, I think we would have gotten into some of the stuff that, that normally happens. And hiring the right people is so important, you know, and that's another lesson learned at Voxel. And, you know, one of the things that we did at Grafana Labs that was very different is, you know, we hired a VP of people ops, um, Alice Farrell, back when we were about uh, 25 people, right? So, you know, people ops is the is a newfangled cool word for HR, right? Okay. And uh, let me tell you, um, I did not have you know, based on previous experiences and the, and the company that ended up buying Voxel, I had a, you know, not a lot of respect for the concept of HR. I had a few run-ins, you could say, with, with that department in my professional career. Um, and uh, we made a very deliberate decision to hire a VP of People Ops, you know, way early. This is, you know, before we did our Series A you know, and I was kind of on the fence, to be honest, of whether we needed to do this, right? I'm like, we're only 25 people. Like, we, do we really need a, a full-time, you know, HR people ops person? And, you know, this role isn't just to, to find new people, right? I mean, Alice is absolutely what I like to call a culture carrier within the company, right? And it's to not only recruit people, find the right people, but to make sure that, you know, people are aligned, that the culture is maintained, you know, and I think that, you know, she's been instrumental. I mean, she ha she's definitely been instrumental in, in helping us scale from, you know, 20 odd people to 150 people plus, you know, and so not to dwell on culture too much, but I, I also think that that's, you know, that's been really important as we built our team in general and our sales team. And we've been lucky enough at, at Grafana Labs to have incredibly low people attrition. Um, I mean, it's insane. I mean, you know, over the last uh, six years, I, I think I could count the number of people who've left the company on on one hand, maybe maybe like one and a half hands. You know, I certainly don't have to start counting, counting toes. You know, so I, I think a lot of it comes down to culture, comes down to hiring the right people at the right time and just uh, and a certain degree of luck, right? I mean, Graham and Doug and Dave have, you know, both helped us in, in very different and unique and timely ways uh, for us over the last couple of years. I, th I think you'll hear people say culture and it seems cliche, but I, I, I disagree. I, mean, I think it's cliche if you can't back it up. If you just say, oh, it's just about culture and you can't really back it up. But what, what you're saying is that you found the right people to make certain organizational properties in your business, you know, super clear. And in terms of, you know, people ops, HR, however you want to frame that person, their duties and what they do, you know, in many ways, figuring out early that they are necessary glue 
right? Not just, as you mentioned, recruiting the right kind of people, but making sure the people that are there stay. Yep. Right. You know, that isn't exactly culture. That's, that's, you know, I would say wise development of a company, but the way the people interact and the respect that engineers and sales have for the necessary sides of the business, that is culture, you know, understanding the golden goose phenomenon, the understanding of those things and making sure that you're not stomping on toes or blaming each other. That is company culture, you know, and it's interesting. We're in this world now with COVID. You mentioned how much you love to travel. I can only imagine how much you, how much you feel not being able to travel as much as you were able to before. And then everybody else too, like everybody has the, was the company always remote? Was this a, a new thing to be remote? You'd mentioned it being remote first earlier. Was that, has it always been remote first? Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting interesting story because when we started the company, you know, Torkel, our co-founder, the guy that actually wrote Grafana, he's always been based in Stockholm, Sweden, right? I was living in New York at the time, and our third co-founder, our CTO, Anthony, he's based in Perth, Australia, right? So from day one, we were kind of you know on three different continents, right? In uh, you know worst possible time zone alignment, and. we kind of had this idea that we wanted to be a, a distributed company, but we opened up offices in New York and Stockholm. And kind of what happened over the course of our first few years is I'd say we evolved or regressed even into being a remote friendly company because we had, a, mm-hmm. we had these hubs in New York and Stockholm. And remote friendly, in my opinion, and it's, it's crystal clear now, although it wasn't at the time, remote friendly is like the worst of, of both worlds. Because what it means is, yeah, we have some remote people. It's fine if you're remote. But the, the, the decision-making, the water cooler conversations, all the important you know, interactions are going to happen in our hubs, right? And if you're remote, you're probably like a second-class citizen within the company because you're disconnected from you know, the, the gravity, you know, the core decisions, the, the core decision-makers. And so we kind of regressed to being a remote-friendly company. And then actually I have to give a lot of credit to, to Tom Wilkie, our VP of product. You know, and then we made a very deliberate decision a few weeks, a few years ago. And we said, you know, we're, we're regressing to being remote friendly. And what we really want to do is be remote first. So then we started trying to de-hub and basically stop hiring people in New York and Stockholm and trying to, you know, kind of shift the balance much more to be remote first. So we felt we could solve the problem both by kind of hiring people away from our hubs, but also making some, you know, sort of operational and cultural changes, right? We'd stop having, you know, if we were going to have a meeting with, you know, in, in the in the office, we'd still have it over Zoom, right? Which was crazy because, you know, like, why do that, right? We'd start, um, you know, doing things in asynchronous, you know, communication methods instead of water cooler kind of conversations, you know, we'd start writing more stuff down in shared Google Docs, right? And so we kind of created this, you know, we, we shifted the center of mass for employees away from the hubs, but we also changed the way that we worked to be more remote first. And I think at this point, you know, it doesn't, I, I really don't think, you know, the average grafanista really cares one way or another where they are, which, you know, so we kind of became truly remote first. And that's now reflected in our hiring policies, you know, it's reflected in, you know, kind of, I'd say, 
aside from the suckiness of the COVID situation, I mean, it's kind of business as usual for us, right? Like no one, Acrofauna Labs, no one has to ever come into the office ever if they don't particularly feel like it. And that was the way we were operating before COVID, right? And, you know, some people like coming into an office and that's fine, right? Like, you know, some people want to be in that environment. Some people don't, Um, you know, like we have a few people, for example, in France and, you know, we ended up opening a small WeWork there because some of our employees were telling us that, like, they, they want to have somewhere to go to. That's fine. But you also don't have to go there. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, we've we've definitely doubled down on remote first. And I'm a big believer that that is the future of um, of work, particularly for software companies and maybe especially so for open source software companies where we're, you know, kind of working hand in hand with the community, which is also global, you know, we're working asynchronously, we're better aligned with, you know, the communities around which, which our, our core software is built. We can find the best people. Our employees have better work-life balance, although that's not implicit in being remote first. You have to take extra, extra care for that to happen. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think we'd, we'd do it any other way. So I'm, I'm really happy that we're, we're truly remote first. Did you see, you mentioned regressing and then sort of being mindful of that. So that requires some checks and balances, I suppose, in leadership to say, you know, where are we going? How are we doing, you know, health-wise in terms of uh, an organization? When you realize you're regressing and then you made that change two years ago, did you see a dramatic shift back to, you know, you didn't say productivity was an issue, but I'm, I'm assuming maybe there was something in there in terms of like, alignment with people, personalities, you know, tension, whatever it might be. So I'm reading between the lines, but like, did you notice dramatic change from that, you know, when you regressed and you noticed it and you made the change back towards remote first, did you see, you know, upshifts in certain areas? What changed dramatically? I'd say it was a dramatic change, but it wasn't like a sudden change, right? It it, it definitely took some time to to affect that change. Um, and I think the main thing we were trying to optimize for was there was a feeling, you know, a, a very, a very real feeling that if you were a senior person in Grafana labs or, you know, someone who was really trying to optimize their advancement opportunities within Grafana labs, that you were at a disadvantage if you weren't at one of the, you know, core hubs, like if you weren't in say New York or in Stockholm yeah. and you know, you were kind of almost relegated to feeling like, uh, you know, almost like an outsourced or disconnected part of the company, if that makes sense. And I think that feeling has now completely gone away, right? So we always wanted to hire people wherever they were. And, you know, we wanted to to be very global in our talent search. And I think there was a, a feeling both held by people at the edges, as well as you know, senior leadership that we were hamstringing ourselves and our ability to do that because of this divide. And I think now that that divide is, is basically gone, mm. you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we did successfully make the transition back to remote first. And at this point, it really doesn't matter where people are. People even move, right? I mean, in, in COVID times, uh, we've had quite a few people kind of decide to, to move around and, and that's fine. So, you know, we, we were definitely used to working in this environment, but, you know, because we were remote first, we also got the team together a lot, right? So, um, we used to have, you know, kind of in-person get togethers, either company wide, uh, or, you know, uh, you know, team by team, you know, project by project, 
you know, the last time we got the whole company together was, you know, late last year or last summer, I should say, you know, the whole company, you know, went to Los Angeles for our annual conference. Then we took the whole company to Vegas for, for a few days after that. And that was, that was tons of fun, but now we've lost all of that, right. The last four or five months. And I think we're really, you know, we're really affected. So I, I don't want to give the impression that like, you know, because we're remote first, we're, we're not impacted by COVID from a cultural standpoint. I'd say it's in some ways it's the opposite. Like because we're so remote for, because we're remote first, we're not impacted from a day-to-day standpoint or an operational standpoint, but those in-person meetings became even more important to happen occasionally, right? Like yeah. we used to have, you know, onboarding every quarter where if you join Grafana Labs, you would be offered to, you know, go to either, you know, to somewhere, whether, you know, that was like Stockholm or New York or London or somewhere like that and, you know, meet as many people as you could. And we'd fly in other people, you know, other leaders and we'd have like, you know, pretty immersive, you know, onboarding, you know, and and it wasn't for onboarding, right? It's not to like be like, here's how, here's your email. Here's how you use Slack. Not at all. It was mainly for social bonding, right? Like let's right. hang out. Connection, Let, the relationships. Exactly. Right. The underestimated things that really, really matter in teams. Yep. Exactly. Do I actually like you? Yep. Yeah. You it's, know what it's, I mean? It, yeah. Well, it makes me like you more. Yeah. It's a lot harder to be a be a dick to someone, pardon my French, uh, online. Uh, you know, if you've if you've met with them in person and, you know, had a beer with them. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. I mean, well, we have a show here on Changelog called Brain Science. We talk a lot about the necessity of relationship. And, I mean, that's what it really is all about. I mean, we're humans, right? It, sure, we're making software. We're building companies. We're doing different things. We're, we're engineering. We're selling. You know, we're CEOing, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, it's about humans. It's about human connection, right? It's about solving people's problems. Like Absolutely. Sure. You know, you're doing Grafana. What Grafana does for is a tool. But it's it's not really just about that. It's about being a useful thing for people. You know, that's that's really what it comes down to. Is you got to you've got to um double down on the human touch. Hundred percent agree. You know? Yep. And it seems even cliche to say that, so I hate even saying it like that. But that's the truth. Like you have to prioritize the people. Yep. I'm almost like we gotta say it every day because people undervalue it. I mean just they just skip it. Yep. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think it's easy to, you know, like that, that human interaction is so important and, uh, you know, doubly, doubly so when you're remote first, right? Like you need to mix that in. And that's what we really miss the last four or five months is, uh, you know, the company, we've hired a lot of people kind of since COVID and, uh, you know, not being able to get the, the teams together and, and kind of meet the new people has definitely had an impact on, you know, on kind of, uh, you know, culture ultimately, right? Because there's this whole group of people that no one's ever met. And it's just different doing it over Zoom. It's way different. Yep. It's awkwardly different sometimes. Like, I mean, like even conferencing, like in our neck of the woods in the tech world, conferences are every day, right? Prior to COVID, the hallway track was what it was all about. And no knock against any organization out there doing a conference by no means, but Remote conferences are not the same as in-person conferences, period, bar none. I mean, because you're missing that touch. Like as a speaker going to a conference, you're not getting to build your network as much because you're really just to some degree phoning it in. You, maybe yeah. you're giving a pre-recorded talk, which is great. You're still getting your name out there. There's nothing against that. We have to do what we can do in our given circumstances. 
but it's really going back to less about knocking that more about prioritizing the human touch because we had that a lot and now we can kind of, we, we took it for granted Yeah, that there was OzCon each year, you know what I mean? And going to OzCon, like what a big deal that was, or even KubeCon and the growth rate of that conference, you know, like these are two sort of pinnacle open source cloud infrastructure conferences that were like killing it, all things open, you yeah. know, like these are great conferences that are now virtual and people are not hanging out, hugging, clinging beers, slapping hands, getting t-shirts, patting on backs, whatever, you know, it's just not happening and it's hard. Yeah, I think I think you're 100% correct. I mean, we, you know, we we attended KubeCon, spoke at KubeCon like, you know, every every year for the last several years and, you know, we have our own conference GrafanaCon every year that we kind of alternated between cities. Like we had one in New York, we had one in Amsterdam, we had one in Los Angeles, and this year we had, you know, we cleverly renamed it to GrafanaCon Line, right? And uh, you know, great name. Yeah, I have to hat tip uh, Scott Fingerhut on that one. But uh, we had the venue booked in Amsterdam. You know, we had our, our speaker schedule all set. We had our catering all set. And, you know, last minute, totally changed it to an online conference. You know, um, the good news is instead of having 500 people show up at Amsterdam, we had 20,000 people register for a virtual conference. So that's a plus, but that's really the only plus. Like it just wasn't the same. You know, the team did a really good job trying to, you know, transition it to be a virtual conference. But, you know, man, it just, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with what you just said. You know, like there's there's really no substitute for uh, for getting people together and those hallway tracks and, you know, hanging out after and, uh, yeah. and, and building those relationships. It's just, it's just almost impossible in a, in a virtual environment for sure. Can we dig into that then? So, I mean, that's a good contrast to consider is the amount of people that will come in person versus the amount of people that will at least share their information, whether they'll show up or not, uh, in a virtual setting. So, I mean, it was like 2000 in person contrast against 20,000 virtually, yeah, it was 500, 500 in person was was what we were planning for for Amsterdam, which we were supposed to, it was supposed to be May. So just a couple months ago, we were, you know, it's going to be in Amsterdam, one of my favorite cities in the world, right? We're right. going to get the, the Looking whole, forward to that travel. <laughs> totally, right? For all the right reasons, of course, Adam, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so we were going to, it was going to be 500 people and we managed to get about 20,000 registrations, you know, not even close to that showed up for any of the live streams. A lot of people, you know, watched it on demand, which was expected. You know, we had some good Q&A on Slack, but that's not at all the same. We spread out our conference over two weeks. So instead of doing, you know, three days, which was, you know, jam-packed, like eight, 10 hours a day, we'd spread it out over two weeks and did basically like, you know, a couple of hours a day. And so it was a learning experience for us, for sure. We'd never really done a, a virtual conference like that. You know, we actually switched streaming platforms at the 11th hour and ended up doing it over uh, streaming it over YouTube because we were like, okay, that'll work. That'll scale. This other thing's just not working out so well, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're going to do it again in October, you know, and I, I was hoping that we'd have a physical conference in October, but that's not going to happen. Um, no. Yeah. So definitely a learning experience for the team. I know when I saw all things open, send the email, when they sent the email saying we're not virtual and it's an October conference, I'm like, you know, back in, you know, May, April, even I was like, I want to hope that we'll be in person. But like, I even called it then, like all things open. I called it in, in April. 
will be virtual. Yeah. And they had like no mention of it. I think KubeCon just decided like a few weeks ago or something like that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think even if you did, even if from a government standpoint and a CDC standpoint or a whomever standpoint that's calling these shots, that's advising local governments on what to do and how to handle it, even then, like, it's just a big risk, I suppose. A lot of work yeah. goes into an in-person conference. Not that non-in-person conferences don't have a similar amount of work. They're different types of work. Still very hard, regardless. Uh, a lot easier, a lot more conferences happening because the the fence, the the hurdles of a conference being in person are down. Yep. So it's a lot easier to throw a virtual conference than it is a, a real face-to-face conference. Yep. So many more moving parts. Ca- talk about capital intensive. I mean, a lot of capital required or at least a lot of commitment. Sure. You know, if not a lot of capital involved in an in-person conference. Yeah. I mean, the flip side, though, I think it's a lot harder to get sponsors for a virtual conference. You know, yeah, yeah, that's the truth. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, I'm trying to camp out, and I'm trying to get your wisdom on like, was it worth it? Essentially, you know, and maybe you can or can't say that. I don't know, but well, was it worth it? I mean, we we didn't really have a choice, right? So, was it worth it to do it rather than not have a conference at all? Definitely, right? Was it worth okay. it? Was it worth it in the sense that it was better than an in person conference? I don't think so. The only net positive, I think, of the virtual conference, well, it was really twofold. One is we definitely got more registrations, right, you know, than, than we would have at a physical conference. And then the other point of feedback that we got from a lot of people kind of tied to the registrations point is a lot of people said, you know, like, I, I really wanted to come to Grafonicon line, uh, sorry, Grafonicon Amsterdam, but there was no way I would have been able to, right? I just like, right. didn't have the budget, didn't have the visa, didn't have the you know, time off, did, you know, couldn't make it to Amsterdam and, and buy a ticket. So the other thing is we made it free, right? Which made it much more sort of accessible. So the combination of it being free and it being virtual kind of really widened the audience a lot. That was the positive. But, you know, honestly, if, uh, you know, if I had a choice, um, you know, uh, definitely physical, right? And so, yeah, was it worth it? You know, it was worth it to try to pull off, which which there was a, a valiant effort on our part uh, of doing so, particularly because it was last minute and uh, we hadn't really done anything like it before. So I think the team did a really good job in, in making it come together, yeah. you know, on kind of a sort of, uh, you know, shoestring and a prayer, so to speak. Right. And, uh, and right. so I'm, I'm really happy about that. But I'm still bummed out that uh, that we're in this situation and that we, we couldn't, you know, have it in person in Amsterdam. Yeah. So about 10 months ago, Series A. Yep. And we, we talked about your hires. I don't know how many did you hire in the last 10 months. You know, what, what did that Series A enable you in the last 10 months? Where are you going? What is that allowing you to do? It's, it's allowing us to really just, just go faster, right? So both in terms of the, the products that we're developing, the investment in open source, our general hiring plans. I think in the last... 10 months, we've gone from about, I want to say, 80 people, maybe 70 people to about 100 and we're about 160 ish today. So, you know, pretty much doubled the company in the last nine or 10 months from a from a headcount standpoint. You know, we're working on a lot of cool projects like, you know, we've we've kind of transitioned from being more than just about Grafana, right? So we're we're very involved in the Prometheus project, which obviously is an our project, CNCF project, you know, and so I think we're, 
kind of like the we're, we're definitely a top contributor to, you know to prometheus which not a lot of people know you know this is part of the whole big tent philosophy right is uh we really want to make the combination of prometheus and grafana really good we launched loki we're working on some cool stuff around tracing uh which we'll have some announcements about uh pretty soon you know we're trying to make grafana cloud a lot better you know, we're hiring more people on the on the go-to-market standpoint. We've got some really long-range bets that we're placing that sort of won't see anything as far as light of day till you know till till well into next year. So it's really allowing us to to kind of you know truly be long-term greedy and just invest across the board. But we think we've got a really good you know back to the window of opportunity, right? Like the this space is a really interesting space right now. You know, like everyone you know, is, is building internet infrastructure and that internet infrastructure is kind of, you know, in transition and, you know, observability is a really, you know, interesting problem to solve right now because people are moving their systems or distributed systems, microservices, whatever you want to call it, are just becoming so complicated and high stakes, you know, and uh, open source is also a really interesting time from window of opportunity because, you know, we've gone from, being like the cheap and cheerful alternative to the, you know, the rail tools to now this is, this is where all the, the truly cutting edge stuff, you know, is actually happening, right? You look at projects like Prometheus or Grafana and, you know, customers are choosing these things, not, not because it's, it's cheap or it's free or it's open source, but because it's the best, you know, like they're making these decisions not for cost, but, but because of capabilities. So, you know, we think that that's a really interesting time, you know, and uh, we're fortunate enough that, it's never been a better time to to kind of be doing what we're doing. So we're trying to, I guess we're trying to make uh, make hay while the sun's shining, so to speak, right? And so, yeah, we're just investing across the board and we're lucky enough to have some good investors who, you know, also kind of believe in what we're doing and, you know, support us and, you know, also get out of the way, or I should say, like, in some cases, support us by getting out of the way, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, since the series A, we have a, you know, a board, right? So we have one board member who's not a founder. So our board is the, you know, three founders plus our new board member, Gaurav Gupta from Lightspeed. And, you know, he's, he's a product guy. He came from Elasticsearch. So he's got a really good perspective. And uh, we'll actually have an announcement, you know, maybe by the time the podcast airs around, uh, you know, some, some other, you know, new kind of, uh, you know, fundraising related news. Mm, okay. I like that tease there. I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't hold you to that. I'm not sure when this is airing, so I don't know what, how much I should say. We have a small backlog, so at least a couple of weeks. So if you can say it in the next couple of weeks, it, it might be three weeks till this is out. So you might All right. Well, well then I'll, I'll say it now, and if you air it too early, you're going to scoop our news. But please don't, um, at least not for a couple of weeks or two weeks from now, shall we say. We can, we can schedule this. No problem. Yeah. Basically, we just raised our Series B, so you know that's that's a fifty million dollars Series B, and so we're um, you know really just trying to accelerate that trajectory even more. Let's talk about that then. So, I mean, twenty four million ten months ago, yep. fifty million today. You know, let's just say today for lack of better terms. I'm sure it's yep uh, fuzzy numbers there, but recent, super recent. Yep. Why does it make sense to raise more money now? So I think two main reasons. One is we're, we're really kind of, and they're, I'd say they're both equal in importance. Um, you know, it's not like ordered, but, but one reason is we're kind of sitting here looking at the kind of call it the, you know, global macroeconomic situation. And there's a lot of 
uncertainty and, you know, potential clouds on the horizon, right? So for us, this is a way where we can kind of take advantage of the current climate, which is very favorable in terms of companies in our space that are doing relatively well and really just strengthen our balance sheet so that we, you know, we, we have continue to have optionality in the business. You know, we have a really strong position, right? Going back to not wanting to make the same mistakes, like, you know, at, at Voxel, we were always, you know, running out of money, you know, struggling to buy more servers, struggling to make payroll, you know, so the reality is, is we haven't even really that spent. sucks. Yeah, no, that totally sucks. It's totally that's, stressful. That's a drain on culture. Like all the things <laughs> yeah. we talked about on the show, it sucks for everybody. I yep. mean, it's, it's not fun at all. Absolutely. Don't want to be in that situation again. And the reality is, is we haven't really, you know, had to spend hardly any of our Series A. So this just really kind of strengthens our, our overall position, right? And uh, so that's that's one reason. And the other reason is we really want to invest even more in our community and our products, right? So we've started to build um, a really good sales team, like, you know, what I told you about the, you know, over the last year and a half, but, you know, and we'll continue to build that out kind of like, you know, organically. The second reason and the other main reason behind this new series B is we really want to make some big bets and, you know, start some initiatives around both open source projects as well as, uh, you know, enterprise and cloud products. And a lot of this won't even, you know, sort of be announced for, you know, another six, nine months, you know. And so, you know, basically we feel that with what we're doing with Grafana and this sort of composable observability platform, you know, there, there's, you know, back to this window of opportunity, there's, there's really a whole bunch of other things that we could be doing within our ecosystem that we really want to launch that will, you know, kind of accelerate um, and hopefully solidify like the Grafana adoption story, as well as kind of bring us further into being a multi-product company, right? Which we've already started to do with things like Loki, Prometheus, um, you know, WorldPing and other things like that. But, um, you know, we really want to have sort of this complete and composable observability platform and, you know, continue to have Grafana at the center of it, but also, you know, be able to do that while putting most of our efforts into open source, right? Because back to the foundational element of that, it's easy for, it would be easy for us to basically say like, okay, like now we want to focus on just building commercial software. We do want to do that, but we also want to kind of put most of our efforts into, into open source because that's the foundation you know, adoption and, and the health of the community is the most important thing to us at Grafana Labs. So in order to do both, you know, we're going to, you know, basically need more firepower and need to, to hire even faster. Um, so that's, those are the two main reasons behind um, our recent Series B. Can you give me some specifics in terms of how that plays out with, you know, one or many of these open source projects, you know, Grafana, Prometheus, Loki, like what specifically will the funding enable you, would it put more firepower behind it, more community involvement, more community initiatives, you know, more developer support, more engineering time? Like, how will that actually play out? Yeah. Oh, I mean, all of the above, really. So, you know, all those the, things, all, all those things. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the Loki teams, you know, the Cortex teams, the Prometheus teams, they're relatively small teams uh, within Grafana Labs, right? Like we've traditionally put most of our, um, you know, engineering resources behind Grafana. But those, you know, those other things like Prometheus, like Loki, Cortex, you know, we'll have some interesting announcements around tracing soon, you know, Grafana Cloud, 
you know, we really want to invest more on the, you know, sort of the wider ecosystem, if you will. So, you know, it's really, it's really not one thing in particular, right? It's sort of more on Grafana, you know, scale up on, you know, the big tent wider ecosystem, um, scale up on, you know, kind of uh, empowering the community, you know, investing in the community, investing in open source, um, you know, also building commercial differentiation, you know, launching new products on our cloud platform, you know, that are, that are very different to what we're doing today. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's really about sort of completing the picture for, from a developer standpoint when, you know, when you want to kind of be able to, to troubleshoot, you know, some of these very complex systems, like everything from, you know, getting an alert uh, at three o'clock in the morning, right? You're blurry eyed. It's a, it's a high stakes game, right? It's, you know, something's down, you know, your, your, your boss is, uh, you know, calling you every 10 minutes, like from the time you get an alert to the time that you, you know, have to look at your metrics, you have to look at your logs, you have to look at your traces, you have to switch between all these disparate systems across different vendors, you know, till the time that you find the resolution, find the problem, you know, like, you know, update your status page, create a, an RFO, how did you violate your internal SLOs? Like how, you know, what does it mean for your external SLAs? There's all these systems, all this data, all this process that you have to go through. And there's so many different kind of avenues along the way to optimize for that experience and to make that experience, you know, really slick, you know, so that's really what we're focusing on. And it's, it goes so much beyond Grafana itself. And if you can kind of optimize for that experience across different vendors, do it in a way that's really composable, prioritizes interoperability, but also just, you know, create a, uh, a flow, if you will, for for that poor developer or SRE, and you know, she she's woken up at three o'clock in the morning, and you know, like, why does she have to have twelve different tabs and you know, ten different systems, and you know, to to deal with uh, you know, eight different vendors, uh, you know, I mean, there's so much suboptimal you know workflow in that, and you know, we just want to take the pain out of that and and do it in a way that you know, is, is interoperable and, and composable. So we're just kind of focused on that problem. And there's so many areas in that problem that we can, that we can innovate on. So that's the majority of the answer to like, you know, where, where are we going to focus? But then the, the other part of the answer is like Grafana itself has been pushed in all these interesting directions by the community, right? In ways that we couldn't even imagine. And that's the magic of open source. And, um, you know, so yeah, most people are using Grafana for kind of like IT operations, right? Whether it's cloud native or legacy IT or, you know, but they're using it to run their, their infrastructure. But we're seeing Grafana used in all sorts of crazy different ways that, that are beyond really our imagination, right? So like there's an emergency room system in Tokyo that's using it to like track wait times across all the, all the ERs in, in Tokyo, right? You know, the German rail system is using it to, uh, to help, uh, help with metrics there. There's a community of people who run beehives that are using it to like monitor the, the activity and the weather around all their beehives, right? I mean, uh, you know, SpaceX is using it like to help with launch control, right? So there's all these use cases that are outside of the normal problem domain that we're solving. You know, whether you want to say that that's like, you know, industrial internet of things, or it's like business intelligence or whatever. Yeah. 
And so we want to kind of find those use cases within the community and figure out what the next step for Grafana is that goes beyond the world that we're in today, right? And that's the really long-term stuff that's really exciting. And I know Torkel, you know, my co-founder is really excited about that angle, which is where does Grafana go next? Because there's nothing in Grafana itself that is specific to IT or containers or Kubernetes, right? Like it is a world-class visualization engine. And so, you know, the IT use case is just the sweet spot that we found right now. But over, over a long enough time horizon, we want to go beyond that. So, yeah, so th- those, those are the things that we're thinking about in, in raising the Series B. And, you know, luckily our existing investors, Lightspeed and Lead Edge, you know, participated in the Series B, the same investors that participated in our Series A. So it was relatively easy for us to, you know, to get done. And it was definitely kind of an opportunistic you know, move for us. We're really pleased to have just gotten that done in the last few days. Well, I'm glad we uh, can ship this show in time to delay to allow that news to be on this show for one. And then two, I'm glad that that news came in so that you can double down on your focus on the foundation of open source and all that you've just talked about there because that's awesome. You know, yeah, that, uh, we're, we're pretty psyched about it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, this is like breaking news and that's super cool. And I'm glad for you on that front. I mean, it's even more uh, reassuring, I suppose, back to reading between the lines that these same investors felt comfortable to come back in in a relatively short amount of time, you know, with a more sizable investment, too. And they feel confident in your future and Grafana Labs future. And that's that's reassuring from the outside point of view of like, okay, something's going right in in there. Then we can appreciate and adopt all that you're doing and believe what you're doing all the more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and we're really lucky to have, you know, Lightspeed and Lead Edge kind of, uh, you know, believe in what we're doing and kind of share the same sort of long-term greedy philosophy. Right. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're pretty, we're pretty psyched about that for sure. Any closing advice you want to share with this audience? I know we kind of covered a, a whole whack, but I mean, is there any like major themes over, you know, this last couple years or any major things just like, man, I've learned this lesson. I've got to share this. Major theme or advice. I, I mean, I suppose for me, it just comes to, to people, right? Which, I mean, you, you kind of double down on, you know, yourself, Adam, right? And, and kind of thinking this through. But I mean, you know, like the Grafana Labs journey for me, I mean, like this is by far the, you know, the largest, fastest growing organization that, you know, I've ever been a part of, right? So like I, Oftentimes I feel like kind of imposter syndrome, you know, going from, you know, 160 people to, to 400 people, especially given my, my last company kind of capped out at, at 50 people. But I think the way, you know, you overcome that, regardless of where your gaps of knowledge or capabilities as a, as a founder are, is just by making sure that you kind of surround yourself by, you know, by the right team, right? That, you know, especially your leadership team. I mean, I feel like that's, you know, that's really the job of, uh, you know, any founder or, or CEO is, you know, you, you really want to make sure that, you know, your core team is the right team with the right people in the right spots to, you know, not only give you the, the advice and the, and the counsel that you need, but to, to get your company to, you know, the, the next level that you need it to get to, right? I mean, like, I, I think a lot of, you know, first-time founders, and I was certainly this way at Voxel, kind of think that they have to know everything or do everything or get involved in every detail. And that was the mistake that I made at Voxel. And, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to evolve my own, you know, kind of MO to, to be is, you know, 
realize that my role is really to, you know, create alignment and to, to make sure that the right people are in the right spots and to really be able to, you know, once you've got that, then, you know, that, that's your main job as, as CEO is to, is to create that, that team, motivate that team and, you know, then basically get out of the way. Right. And, you know, (laughs) if you can do that, then, uh, then I think you're on the right track. That's a hard thing to do. It's, it is a super hard thing to do. Yeah. You have to be quite humble in that. I mean, that's a humble perspective and not everybody has that perspective. So I don't know where you learn that at, if it's just like school of hard knocks or bloody knuckles or what, but that's a, that's why I asked you that question. I don't know what you're going to say, but that's a good lesson to learn and a good lesson to share because that humble approach is difficult to one, understand and two, execute on because it takes a lot of humility to just get out of the way. I'll be the first to admit that, uh, you know, I, I, I violate what I just said on a, on a continual basis, but that's sort of like the, I, I think that's your like North Star. The, the ideal end state. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I say for myself. Like one of my personal North Stars is work eight, play eight and sleep eight. And just like you, I violate that often. I don't always get it right. Yeah. That's my North Star. That's yeah. what I'm trying to get right. And so as a CEO, if that's what you're trying to get right, then at yeah. least you know what you're trying to do. I think I think North Star is a, a good way to put it. And I, I think it's okay if you don't always get it right. And I think particularly, you know, in a startup, it's not a rule that you should endeavor to always follow. And you're just not going to be able to follow either because you're not going to be able to resist violating it or because you need to violate it or because the company is best served by you violating it. But I think having it as a North Star is, is definitely good. And, and, you know, that's the right way to think about it. I will say then to end cap that when I do violate it, I do it with intention and purpose and usually with the season. There's a time attachment to it. I'll do it or I'll allow it for this season or for these particular reasons. And I'm always in check on that. Yep. Because I, I will let myself violate it. And it's, it's necessary, as you said, sometimes. Yeah, but I've got to do it for the right reasons, and I got to absolutely that balance of like, if I'm going to do this, here's the repercussions of it. Yep, yep. I, I think you need to be self-aware about about doing it, and I also think you like you need to do it more the the earlier stage the organization is. Right? It's just that north star should become increasingly bright as you scale the company. Yeah. Well said, Raj. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for your heart and what you're doing, your focus on this golden goose. I love I love that uh, that metaphor. It's awesome. And thank you so much more so for sharing your wisdom here today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Appreciate it. This was fun. All right, that's it for this episode of Founders Talk. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, check out changelaw.com slash plus plus. We have launched our membership. It's called Changelog Plus Plus. For 100 bucks a year, you can make the ads disappear, get closer to the metal, and of course, support everything we do here at changelaw.com. And of course, thank you to our partners, Fastly, Lunch Darkly, and Linode, and also to Break Master Cylinder for making all those awesome beats for us. That's it for this episode. I'll see you next time.